Psychomedy is brought to you by ThreadUp, Manchester-based therapy that supports creativity. I'm Rafaela Nunes, the founder of ThreadUp and the counsellor supporting the creative community. Comedians and creatives in general can experience anxiety, depression, low moods, and this in turn can affect their creativity. One-to-one counselling can facilitate a safe space for creatives to explore any difficulties, to gain self-awareness, to develop strategies that work, and ultimately to create choices that are aligned with the natural creative flow. If you're in need of support, then please get in touch. Visit threadup.co.uk to book your counselling sessions at reduced rates when you quote Psychomedy. of Psychomedy. I'm Nathan Cassidy, stand-up comedian and Bachelor of Science in Psychology, a degree I've almost entirely forgotten, but adds a tiny bit of credibility to me discussing the psychology of stand-up comedy with today's very special guest, the brilliant stand-up comedian, star of stage and screen and this podcast, it's Callie Beaton. That's a very generous introduction. Indeed, indeed. No, actually, that's the most generous introduction I've ever given. So. Well, well, don't top it with anyone else, if you wouldn't mind. <laughs> this podcast is ending as of today. <laughs> it's peaked now already. <laughs> it's peaked yeah. already. So, as usual in uh, Psychomedy, we are not going to be looking at each other for the duration of the interview. And just before the uh, tape started rolling, that surprised Callie and was like, oh my God. Um, so how are you feeling there, Callie, not looking at me in the well, eye? It's supposed just, to be to relax you. But I'm I, going to admit, can you see how tense I am? I'm going to yeah, admit, quite, yeah. <laughs> I'm like I can sense a, out the corner of my eye that you're I'm, um, I'm fully embryonic at this point. Shall I just admit something, which is I can see you in the screen, <laughs> in the screen of my laptop. Okay. So I can't see you. It's not like a mirror. Well, can that you, should relax you. Can then, you, you see know? me in it? I can see you. How you're smiling that? at least. <laughs> so you can see see enough to see we my face. We may as well just look at each other in the eye. <laughs> it's kind of. Um, what do you think? Well, I can see you. I can, but I can see out of the corner of my left eye that you are <laughs> tense and embryonic. But I think why doesn't that relax you? Because you can now you have the choice of glancing up and seeing that I'm not yeah. taking the Mickey out of you uh, with the producer. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the bit that's weird. You don't normally, as, as a sort of single woman, I don't normally let two men I don't know that well <laughs> sit behind me with no eye contact. I'm also wondering if this might be a way to have a first Tinder date where you'd actually meet, but you just look at a dim reflection in a, <laughs> in a laptop screen and see what, see how, see what gives. What do you think? <laughs> that would be much better. <laughs> so, yeah. Anyway, I'm going to start laughing at my own jokes now. No, and no, it's fine. Relax for It's fine. Good. Well, you have the option, but if I glance up and you're looking at me in the eye through that laptop screen, I think you're cheating and I'll have to move it and cover it up with one of my posters. I can't see Mike, I can only see you, so that feels less alarming. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Mike. Right. 
I'm glad in the middle of all that you said uh, someone I don't know that well. So that makes me feel very good, well, having, no, well, having I mean, known you for a few years. Yeah, okay. That's fine. No, what I mean is that... <laughs> no, but you're not like one of my besties. What? <laughs> no, but you didn't come to my birthday party. We, was I invited? <laughs> there was no party. But, you know, if, if there had been... And you didn't invite me to yours either. No, no, I wouldn't. Did you have that. one? I would never... Yes, I, oh, okay. I have a party every week. <laughs> Great. With all my loosest friends. And, and I've know. never been to your no, place. No, you're on the F list at the moment. <laughs> I can see that. Okay. So, as we don't know each other at all, as mm. we've established, when did you get into comedy? Um, how many years ago was that? Stand-up uh, five, comedy. Nearly five years ago, not quite five years ago. So, yes, at the, um, at the young age of 45, I did my first gig. Nice. Yeah, and just we... like all the other comics. I was like, mid-40s, <laughs> I've grown a beard, I'm going to start stand-up. There is no point starting before then. You don't have anything to say, exactly. do you? Exactly. Really? No one does it before then. <laughs> and what were you doing before then? I was working in television, so I've worked pretty much my whole career in television behind the cameras. Mm. So I um, ended up kind of most of my career on the business side of television. So mm. ran an independent production company that got bought by Carlton Television. Mm. So then I was at board level within the ITV group, sort of unexpectedly at a reasonably sort of young age. So I've had a sort of board level business side of telly kind of a career, really. Oh, nice. Board yeah. level at the ITV group, that's... Do you know who else used to be board level at Carlton Television? Go on. David Cameron. Oh, wow. Used to do internal comms for Carlton. So you know David Cameron? Well, I mean, does anyone know David Cameron? (laughs) I've never been in his shed. So uh, that's that's what I'm. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Do you have David Cameron's phone number? No. Would you like it? (laughs) Can we stretch this podcast to? I mean, he's a kind of comedian, isn't he now? You've asked me for two phone numbers since you got to my house. That's the only, only reason we're here. Really for, what are you after? Is this I'm even after ever David gonna, Cameron's phone number. You, is this going out or is it just a way? Are you just coming in so you can download my uh, address book? <laughs> okay. Um, so did you um, did you work with any uh, like high-profile comedians over those years at ITV? I assume you did. I did. I mainly worked. So I met a lot of people, um, a lot of people coming through the sort of circuit in the UK mm. To be honest, that was as much through my dating life as it was through my my professional life. Uh, So, yeah, that all happened. And then I worked mainly for... (laughs) Sorry, I can't ignore that. There seems to have been a casting couch scenario in your time at ITV. But I wasn't a comedian. No, they weren't getting anything out of me. I don't think anyone was getting anything out of anything. It was just like, it's just like dating is. Um, uh, And then I ended up working for Comedy Central. Uh, Mm. So I, I ended up at... I used to work for MTV um, before I worked for ITV. Mm. And then some years later, I went back to MTV when it was part of Viacom. And Viacom own Nickelodeon, MTV, Comedy Central, Paramount Pictures, all of those kind of people. So then I worked with Comedy Central in the US primarily a lot. So I got to meet some really interesting uh, people through that job. And it was through that job that I ended up getting into um, stand-up through kind of conversations with a couple of on-screen talent from Comedy Central. So, yeah, that, yeah, there was a sort of link. Yeah. yeah. As you're in stand-up now, is your relationships with stand-up, uh, stand-ups differ uh, at all to, to when you were an executive? Yeah, because when I was an executive, everyone was right up my ass trying to get favours <laughs> and inviting me to everything, and now no one cares. So, yeah, I've basically plummeted from high status to zero status uh, voluntarily, which I think is a pretty good sleight of hand if anyone wants any kind of career tips. Right. So, yeah. In that executive world, is there any kind of talk about a comedian's kind of psychological makeup or a comedian's personality? Is that, is that something that's 
that's talked about often as your cat walks into the room. I don't licking think. Your water. <laughs> oh, is it licking my water? Oh, oh it's fine. I, it's fine. Oh, shit. It's time for it's fine. Cat, for... can I interview you now, please? What do you think That's of Sid. your owner, Sid? <laughs> yes, yeah, Sid's quite old. Okay. So be nice to him. Yeah. Um, what was the question? Yes. So, no, there was less talked about. I mean, I would say that I got a little ink. So, I would sometimes, um, this is so name dropping, it's going to alienate everybody in comedy that I've said this. But so, I used to go to Cannes a couple of times a year mm. for the TV festival, and we quite often would have on screen talent come with us mm. to promote whatever show they were doing. And so, I would spend quite a bit of time in close proximity with some of the stars of stage and screen mm, such and as. without uh so i spent some time with yeah you haven't name dropped yet yeah, i'm I waiting for it uh, so, you've already well, mentioned david cameron you've got to so got to amy i spent some time with amy polar when she just started and the, and the girls um ilana and abby from broad city mm. when before it was a big deal and that was um so got to know her quite well kevin hart spent lots of time with him and it was joan rivers who got me into stand-up so there's there's mm. a clonking great name drop for you yeah. um and so it wasn't no we weren't sort of all scurrilously talking behind the backs of comedians about their psyche mm. especially because we were really just trying to make loads of money off their backs so you know we didn't yeah. mind what they were going through so kevin hart amy polar joan rivers i have one question for you do yeah. you have any of their phone numbers <laughs> yeah all of them I'll, I'll give them to you now i'll <laughs> airdrop you. them into your phone and then show us to the door yeah yeah no worries my pleasure okay. yeah so now you are joan rivers you... is dead but do you still want her number <laughs> yeah okay yeah that's not a problem yeah i'll give you her pa as well in case you have trouble getting through to her yeah nice her pa is called jocelyn you'll like her lovely yeah so now you are shoulder to shoulder with uh, Kevin Hart and Amy Poehler as a stand-up comedian yourself. Um, last time I saw you do comedy, you were at the brilliant Comedia in Brighton. Yes. And what were you doing in Brighton? Remind me. <laughs> I'm there every weekend. Okay, I just trying to just remember. in case you're on. Okay. I'm just hanging out with David Cameron nice to and the see boys. You. It was nice to see you again. Now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So um, this is a uh, fairly big club. Um, and it's a few hundred people with a tiny dressing room. I've done it quite a few times. How, yeah. are, you, how are you feeling in this gig generally? Is this somewhere you're comfortable? Kind of. I haven't done It's funny you say that because I hadn't done Comedia for a while. Mm. I know Stephen Grant well and I've done the... Who hosts the show. Yeah, yeah, who hosts the show. And I've done, I've done spots at Comedia quite a bit, um, but I hadn't done one for a couple of years. Okay. And I think that's partly because I'm trying to reevaluate my relationship with the kind of pro club circuit because I do do some of the bigger clubs now. Like I've just done a couple of weekends at the stand, opening the stand mm. in Edinburgh and Glasgow. And I'm only saying that because now that I'm getting those gigs, I'm just trying to work out if they're what I want to be doing mm. or if I'm doing them just to prove to myself I can and to try and get better at what I'm doing. So because of that, I kind of wasn't pushing for those kind of comedia glee spots. So mm. this one kind of came in randomly by my agent. And I think my agent thought I'd never done comedia before. Mm. And it was only two days before they were like, why are you doing it? Then if you keep doing it, why don't you, you know, why, why are you going down there mm. after all this time? So that's a really long answer to say I hadn't been to comedia for ages. Mm. Um, but if I can pick up on that, what, what would be the alternative for you in, in not doing those big clubs then? And, and why, why have you kind of been making that decision not to do those over the last year or two? Well, I suppose I'm starting... So I do loads of clubs that are really good clubs that I love. Mm. So I do lots of emceeing, as I know you do. Mm. So if I can sort of emcee the boat show down on Embankment or Angel Comedy... Yeah. Um, or go and jump on a gig at Top Secret, those are really lovely gigs to do. Mm. And 
I suppose that feels a bit different to going to the stand or Comedia or Glee. Mm. And Different as in, what, more comfortable? Or? Yeah, more comfortable maybe, mm. and also maybe lower stakes, because if it all goes wrong, I'll be home in seven minutes, uh, which is not the case for these out-of-town gigs. I, it's funny, you started by saying the, the backstage bit. Mm. I was t- Who was I talking to about this? I don't know, somebody, some, some female comedian who's more established than me. Oh, I can't remember who it was. Joan Rivers? Uh, yeah, Joan Rivers often speaks to me from beyond the grave, <laughs> and what she said to me on this particular <laughs> seance was... Uh, no, so it was It was about, um, I sometimes feel quite uncomfortable backstage, and I don't know why that is, but I sometimes find the backstage bants, particularly at those big clubs, yeah. where there are some people who've been going 20-odd years and who are brilliant club comedians, I, I start to feel so inadequate as a comedian that by the time I go on, I've my imposter syndrome is raging to the point mm. I don't think it brings out the best in me. And sometimes on stage I still do well. Mm. But I'm just not sure it's a price worth paying for the misery of backstage. Yeah, that's interesting. That's deep, have, isn't it? Yeah, you have the option of um, always, uh, but uh, in, in the comedian and coming out of the dressing room and watching from the side, is that something you don't do? You, no, do you I stay do. in the dressing room? You know, I stand in the dressing room just crying and <laughs> yeah. feeling inadequate. Um, yeah, I'm rubbing my worry beads, uh, non euphemistically. No, it's um, so I do, no, I do come out and watch. Mm. And actually, that's one of the things I don't like about the stand in Edinburgh. Um, this is really relatable material I'm giving you here. The stand mm. in Edinburgh, as you know, you can't come out discreetly once you're backstage because <laughs> you have to literally walk through a third of the venue. Yeah. So you either have to commit to being out for the whole of the section <laughs> or you've got to commit to being backstage. And obviously, if you're on in part of a section, you haven't got, got the luxury of that choice. Yeah. And so opening the stand in Edinburgh is the worst of all worlds for me because I can't be in the room watching the MC mm. and then go on stage. And I'm a real people reader as well. And I love seeing the audience before I go out and do my thing. Yeah. So I particularly am not a fan of the layout of a club like that where you can't watch. But no, that, that night that you, you know, you joined me in the room at Comedia, mm. you'll probably remember that I came out and stood to the side near where you were <laughs> during the gig until it was time for me to go on. Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I wonder whether any comedian actually asks to come on from the audience because yeah that's a feeling i get in dressing rooms sometimes i'd rather come on from the audience actually i'd always rather come on from the but audience. it looks you have it in your head that nobody would allow that it would look incredibly unprofessional but why it, it wouldn't particularly look like you're just you've won a competition but that's the that's the feeling you'd get maybe well maybe you would have won a competition <laughs> yeah. you know that's how i get all re- my gigs it might not be related to comedy but you might have won something that day <laughs> so you're there you're you, you may be feeling slightly uncomfortable in that tiny dressing room at comedia how are you feeling then when you're introduced in your in your mind well do you do anything before you come on in terms of any relaxation or anything else like that uh, i I create a teepee out of um, yeah of chairs. No, I don't do anything specific. I do have a sort of little ritual of working out what I should be doing in my head mm. to get me ready, which usually just leads to sort of deep anxiety and incapacity to do basic things. Mm. So that's helpful. Um, so that is how you're feeling in the seconds before uh, you come I, I remember Sarah Pascoe saying to me when I did a gig with her, when I'd only been when I'd been going a couple of years, mm. and we did a gig for the Women's Equality Party up in... Um, we did it in for their first conference mm. and Sandy Tuxfig was emceeing it and it was me, Sarah Barron, Sarah Pascoe. I think I've seen a clip of that. Yeah. Right? yeah. And that for me at the time was obviously quite a big gig. There were about 3,000 people in. Mm. And I was thinking, I mean, I'd, I've done a lot of corporate speaking to audiences that big, but I hadn't done a gig 
comedy gig for that many people. And I remember just before Sarah went on, who went, she went on before me, she said, oh, God, I always just wish I didn't do comedy and wonder why I'm doing this at this point. Mm. And I was really relieved that someone like <laughs> Sarah Pascoe said that. And I thought, oh, OK. So I tend to get my sweet spot for being good on stage is getting a bit introverted and ratty before I go on stage. If right. I'm being quite witty and lovely backstage, it doesn't always all go well for me. Okay. Yeah. You, you look quite happy when you first come on. You've got a big smile and you're raising your arms sometimes and getting everyone on board. Is that a kind of, I'm not happy, but here I am pretending? Because it doesn't look like you're pretending. And uh, is, is it, does it go the instant then you walk through the curtains or are you... Yeah, Are you still I'm, feeling anxious as, as you face the audience? Well, I've never felt more anxious than I am lying on this couch <laughs> with you sitting by. You can look me in the laptop from here. I, I keep looking at I'm you. I'm smiling, hi. I can see. Um, so, yeah, I, I no, once I'm on stage, most of the time I feel very comfortable because I spent a lot of my corporate life on stage doing sort of speeches and panels and stuff. Mm. So I've spent most of my life on stage one way or another. So once I'm on, I feel okay. Yeah. Uh, and I'm ge- uh, no, it's not fake. I, I'm genuinely. I say in my new Edinburgh show, there's one bit, spoiler alert, where mm. I say, you know, because I I sort of set myself up as someone who's quite fearless in a way in this particular show, mm. and then I say, you know, actually the reason I act like I'm so fearless is because I'm so scared of everything. Mm. Um, that wasn't emotion in my voice. That was I can't drink my water because the cat's just had its face in it. Um, so yes, so so I and and I also say I'm the sort of person who gets on stage and does this night in night out because I find life off stage so bloody difficult. Mm. And that's reasonably true that I'm much more confident. I'll find the social aspect of a gig much harder than the on stage part of the gig. Okay. Well, that is interesting. Do you but, think uh, I actually need psychoanalysis now? No, not pretend. at all. I mean, that, that is the case with with most comedians, I would yeah. say, that of course they find the period off stage more difficult. You say in your show that you're fearless and you find life difficult. I mean, how, how does that manifest itself in terms of finding life difficult and being, you know, maybe scared of stuff? Well, I think I've just always pushed myself really hard. So, you know, out, I mean, this is what I talk about in my kind of TED Talky day job life mm. is that you know what what is success so why would someone like me have pushed themselves so hard to achieve supposedly lots of the kind of yeah marks of success but, but for what and what's actually going on to make you know when people say you know if you're when you're driven what are you driving out it's that kind of theory isn't it mm. so so why would you push yourself so hard does mm. that make sense okay kind of kind of i mean you say you. That sounds like a no to me. <laughs> well, you say you've done. You, have you? You've done psychoanalysis before, have you? I've had lots of therapy. Yeah. yeah. I've had every which way kind of therapy. Have you found that useful in terms of? Do you, Do you find it easy to talk about yourself? You know, when um, I sometimes feel like I'm asking you a question and then you're referring me to somebody else. Um, do you find it easy to talk about yourself and your inner fears and you know you really don't have to talk about those today at all but do you find it easy to talk about those things or yeah I do I find it too easy to actually I think I am as I said to my therapist last week and I actually did I said part of me thinks why do I keep coming to therapy I just need to lighten up and (laughs) stop banging on about it and just kind of rediscover my giddy kipper Hmm. Um, she's um She's Turkish and she didn't understand. Then we spent half an hour me trying to explain what a giddy kipper would be in Turkish. Or being charged. So it was, then I was like, oh, I shouldn't have bothered with that. And then would it go with olives? And anyway, mm. I wished I'd never mentioned it. But 
yeah, there was a sentiment there where I thought, oh, just live a bit, stop going on about it. Mm. And it's, is that something you talk about with other people as well as your therapist? Are you, are you open with everyone in terms of what's going on in your mind from kind of... Well, I've got some really close friends. I think yeah. when you've been, you know, I've been a single mum for like most of my kids' life. So I'm, you develop a pretty good network of people around you. Uh, if I think if you're single for a long time, yeah. you probably have really good friends compared to people who, you know, are in a sort of toxic marital hell, which obviously is what marriage is always like. <laughs> uh, that's what I tell myself. So yeah, so I do. Yeah, I, I do have lots of good friends who I talk to about all that kind of mm. heavy shit. Yeah. And you do talk about personal things in your stand-up set. Do you find that helpful? Well, that's the thing, isn't it? The stuff that seems like you're disclosing a lot on stage is incredibly consciously, you know, disclosed. They're, they're, I, I don't, I absolutely decide what I will and won't reveal on stage. And it's very rare in a club set I reveal anything, actually, of my real, real self. I mean, what I'm saying is authentic, but mm. it's not really digging into the... My show is more like that this year, um, but, okay. my, but my club sets are, aren't really, it's very, it's curated disclosure. And if there's a sort of TMI moment, it's very much deliberate. Mm. So your show this year is called Invisible. And yeah. so it really does dig deeper into who you yeah. are and those kind of... No, I, there is a, there's some quite, uh, yeah, there's some quite dark moments in that show. It okay. does have gags as well. I'd just like to get that out there. Mm. And these are around your fears and finding life difficult, is it? Without giving the Well, the Invisible the Thesis, away. which as I'm sure you read my recent Guardian article, you'll know this. Oh. My Invisible Thesis is, so what sparked me to do the show was that guy called Yann Moi, M-O-I-X, if anyone would like to Google him. At the beginning of 2000, yeah, beginning of 2019, he said that women when they turn 50 are unlovable and invisible and that there is nothing extraordinary about the body of a 50-year-old woman. He said a lot of other things too, but those oh. are the headlines. So that made me want to do the show, and it's taken me several months to work out genuinely what I think about invisibility. I turned 50 this year, um, and that is the point at which women supposedly, pretty much it's game over really in terms of the aesthetic of us, so people would say, and some might even say the point of us professionally and socially. So I've been thinking about that and wondering if that would happen once I turned 50, which it hasn't. And it was really only through doing the show and that article that I realised that I always was quite invisible for lots of reasons throughout my life. And I've never been more visible than I am at 50. So because I didn't think I was worth being visible, it's taken me this long to have enough self-esteem to think I deserve to be. So that's quite a heavy answer, but that is the kind of, that's the serious thesis behind mm. the show. Obviously, it's a lot more lulls than that, <laughs> even more. So yeah, that's a relief, isn't it? No, I mean, it's incredibly interesting. And of course, it's um, you know, it's on everybody's lips in terms of women in comedy. And uh, yeah, I haven't heard of this uh, Yann Moi character. Who, well, I mean, who is he? Don't bother. He's nobody. <laughs> who did. is this prick? Well, he this prick is. I mean, you should see him as well. I was like, I've spent my life trying to be invisible to men who look like you. Uh, but anyway, and he's fifty. You know, a fifty-year-old. Well, that's man why I can't see him. Who looks like he should live in a swamp, saying that women like me are invisible. Which, um, but you know, bitter. No. Uh, so he is. A, he's like a sort of. Uh, he does a bit of journalism and a bit of sort of mm. the odd panel show. Nothing like the sort of things I'm dabbling with at all. Mm. Bit of journalism, the odd panel show. But yes, yeah, so he, he's a kind of like random, vaguely somebody French. Yeah. Um, he is French. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so it, I think the thing that's on every... There's a lot of things being said about middle-aged women and women in general. Mm. But I feel that the bit people are missing is when they say women at a certain age become invisible, 
the only, if you speak to women my age, lots of people will say to them, God, you don't look 50, you look great, which to me implies that most women at 50 <laughs> look great and people don't know what a woman at 50 looks like. Mm. When this guy said that stuff, loads of beautiful women who were 50 sent pictures of their tits, their arse, that he had to put out a thing on social media to say, please stop sending me pictures of your asses," <laughs> Because all these women were like, yeah, how's that looking to you? It's pretty extraordinary, isn't it? So he, he had a sort of um, arse tit backlash. Maybe mm. that was his aim. But he, what he's missing is we, do, we look fine on the outside and no one need feel sorry for us about not getting attention uh, in terms of dating and life. But we do slightly lose ourselves inside because it's a really hard time for women yeah. um, for lots of chemical and social reasons. So he missed completely the point, uh, but said something that was quite thought provoking. Mm. Indeed. So this is, yeah, one guy, but this is obviously a broader issue in, sort of, uh, in terms of women generally. But uh, I mean, let's talk about women in, in stand-up comedy. Um, do you feel like it's more difficult for you being a woman? Do you feel like it's more difficult for you being a woman of 50 at progressing through the industry? Uh, I'd say yes and no. So... Um... It doesn't feel, I've always been a sort of in a minority, you know, I've sat on a lot of all male boards in my life and I've very frequent, and I went to an all boys school. So I am familiar with what gender imbalance feels like and I often almost don't notice it. In comedy, there's, I definitely think comedy is a little bit more sexist uh, than most other things I've done, but not most people. There is a small minority of sort of sexist, sort of not, not great people, but they are the they are the exception to the rule. Mm. In terms of on stage, um, I sometimes think audiences, perhaps you have to pedal a bit harder as a woman, perhaps you have to be liked as well as funny um, in your first sort of 30 seconds. Mm. But I'm sure a lot of guys would be listening to this going, no, we all, you know, we all have to be liked and be funny. So I don't know how hard it is. I do think it's slightly... It, it can hold you back and propel you forward. I think if you're a woman and you're any good at, on stage and in panel shows and stuff, you get more because yeah. they need more women. So I can't deny that's an advantage. Um, I'd like to see myself getting much more positively discriminated into things than has happened today. <laughs> and I don't know what more I have to do than be ginger and 50. I, I don't know what else I've got to do, but some, clearly I need a sort of hat trick of things. Mm. Two isn't enough. <laughs> Can I pick up on the audience uh, thing in the first 20 or 30 seconds? Because it's exactly the same conversation I had with someone the other day in terms of, Nathan, you don't understand. You have to impress the audiences more as a woman in the first 30 seconds. Was that a woman who seconds. said that to you? Yeah, that's why I was doing a slightly yeah, weird impression of a yeah. woman. Nathan. Yeah. <laughs> she, well, no, she was a very good friend and she was having a little bit of a go at me in kind of... Um, in kind of not understanding that. Is there any way of making me understand it a little bit better? Was that another person who you thought was a good friend but who'd never met you <laughs> yeah, before? I haven't seen her since this conversation. You need actually. some boundaries, my friend. That's all I'm saying. Um, so I think, um, I, you know, again, this isn't forensic. This is entirely subjective. Yeah. But, and I'm really, I really try to avoid gender stereotypes, which is a weird thing to say when I'm making a point that's gender related. But 
I, look, I'll give you an example. This is a concrete example. I emceed a night at a big West End comedy club mm. and it was an all-female comedy night. Mm. And I can't remember if on the posters or anything it said it. I don't think it did say it. But it was me hosting an all-female bill and the club who put it together were thinking this was pretty pretty modern of them to do. Mm. I decided not to mention anything about it being an all-female comedy night at all throughout the night. I thought it's just a night. It doesn't matter. Mm. At the start of the night, I happened to overhear a conversation where a woman and her boyfriend were walking off to the toilets and they walked past where I was standing, because as you know, as a comedian, you usually are by the toilets. And she said to her boyfriend, um, she said, oh God, I bloody hope there aren't any women on the bill tonight. <laughs> and I thought, oh God. So I clocked who it was and I thought, mm, when shall I, or shall I say anything? Anyway, I let the night play out. First half happened and then we had the first act of the second half. So just one more act to go the headliner. And then I did say, I did sort of pick out her and her partner and said I heard them saying it. And I said, have you noticed anything about the bill tonight? And she hadn't even noticed it was all women. Um, but then she said, is there going to be a bloke now? <laughs> <laughs> so I said, and I don't know if that was her thinking. That's why I mentioned it. Mm. But I did think, and then afterwards, the promoter said, "Why didn't you mention it was an all-female bill at any point? Mm. Like that should have been a selling point." Yeah. But I thought, well, actually, we're only really going to be because you don't mention when it's an all-male bill. Mm. And you go, oh, tonight you've got not four but five male comedians, <laughs> and I'm a male MC. Uh, so I, I, and also when they, you know, occasionally I'd, I won't name names, but if you've ever been to those to all-female gigs where they it's quite bedecked in sort of pink satin. And have you ever been to one of those? And I'm like, oh, I don't. Not allowed it through the doors. No. <laughs> it doesn't need to Boundaries. look like a sort of I don't know what, like a hen party or an summer's party. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'd just like to do a gig like a normal person. Indeed. And no one cares. So I guess yeah, that that's kind of avoiding the issue as to do we need to be like mm. well that what that woman said clearly means yeah. that if you walked out. Well, that's she, not, she would prefer you to me, which is an extraordinary thing to get our heads around. And maybe after I had a conversation with my other friend, my only other friend, it's maybe I just think I've got more hope for humanity. Uh, and more it, that, friends. <laughs> that, that these opinions are not so prevalent. But as she said, and as you were potentially saying, they are just... Maybe I should just give up hope for humanity. I was thinking that earlier today no. when I saw saw someone for the umpteenth time drop litter in Hackney. I'm just like, as an adult, I'm just like, maybe I should just give up hope. It's... But I feel hugely full of hope as such a woman. Good. Yeah, I, I've got loads of hope for humanity. Why? Because um, I think people generalise loads about... One of the things I missed when my kids left home, when my daughter left, who was obviously my second one to go... And I realised as much as I missed her, I missed the fact that teenagers hunt as kind of packs. So you tend to have loads of them in your house or none. They don't really want to be in the house on their own. Mm. Why would they? And I realised how in, all these incredible like millennials and Generation Zers. There's I was I think there's loads of brilliant things to, coming through from those two sort of next generations and all the mm. sort of it's easy to have a pop at them, you mm. know, for eating too many avocados and whatever we're supposed to criticise them for doing. But I actually think they're, you know, that's the future. So that's well, I'm that's glad you're hopeful. hopeful. I'm really hopeful. I fear the general trend is towards oblivion, but um, yeah, let's let's not. Get yeah, but that's too your depressed. thing, isn't it? That's your thing. <laughs> that's my shtick. That's why everybody who you think is a friend is like, oh god. <laughs> Can you stop mentioning my lack of friends, please? It's not yeah. about that. Um, I think you mentioned just about five minutes ago that you went to an all boys school. Is that right? Yeah. Did I mishear that? Okay. Yeah. Um, well, why? What? How did that happen? Uh, my, by mistake, my parents didn't know what gender I was. <laughs> and then, you know, no, my parents were teachers and that's where they taught. 
Right, right. So you're yeah. the only girl in an all boys school. Uh, I was, and in the end, I think were... we got to the bottom of why you're a stand-up comedian, Kelly. Yeah, yeah, no, we have. We have. <laughs> well, there's many reasons. Uh, yeah, and then there were eight girls in the school by the time I left five years later. Because they'd had seven other daughters, or uh, yeah, they were all staff children. So as if it's not hard enough to be right. a staff child when you're literally like they, you might as well have a t-shirt saying, "Please pick on me." Why would, why, coupled with the fact, why I would was, a girl go to an all boys school just just because? I've just explained. It yeah, to you. but it's it was in the middle of the countryside. It was a okay. boarding school. There was no right. other school. Okay. So I was at a boys boarding school. Does that help <laughs> shed any light on anything? And I should also point out that I wasn't. Um, I wasn't a looker as a child, not that I know, maybe that's not the right way to describe a child. I'm describing myself, so I'm allowed to say it. Um, I was, I was... <laughs> Put up I, some photos on the computer, let's have a look. I was, uh, I was very, I was overweight, I was ginger, still am, mm. I had glasses, uh, mm. I had corrective footwear because there's something funny about my legs. Um, it wasn't, you know, that wasn't going to be... Uh, that was going to be a tough paper round wherever I'd gone to school, so it was particularly hard at a boys' school. Right. I can see in the laptop that you're smirking. <laughs> well, it's just it's just bingo. There it is, stand-up comedian. You spent all those years at ITV when you were actually a comedian. For yeah, but years. interestingly, and this is, again, you're very welcome to come to one of my corporate talks sometime because they're zingers, mm. but I, one of the things I talk about, that's how I start my talks, is that, you know, I'm standing up here supposedly to inspire you because I'm so successful. But actually, I tell that story only in a hilarious way. And then I say, you know, fast forward 30 years, there I was in an ITV boardroom, completely mm. not belonging yet again. Mm. And that's kind of the thesis of Invisible is I spent decades not belonging um, yeah. and, not, and not being noticed or being noticed for all the wrong reasons, like mm. at that school. So to be serious for a second, was it a hard time at school being in that environment? What do you reckon, <laughs> you idiots? <laughs> That's what I tend to say to my real therapist. <laughs> That's my refrain. You're not um, paying me, though, so you can't be yeah, so rude. And you're not paying me, so don't ask stupid <laughs> questions. Uh, so, no, it was amazing. It was just the best years of my life. I just wanted you to expand on it. <laughs> okay. All right, let me rephrase that. You asked a close question. Let me rephrase that. I assume that was a terrible experience, Kelly. Uh, yeah, what you need is to ask open questions in your podcast <laughs> that don't allow a yes-no answer. Yeah. Uh, so, yes, yes, that... I'm glad you asked that, Nathan Cassidy, uh, because I'd like to expand on the theme. Yeah, it was really difficult. Um, That's surprising. Yes, I think it is. <laughs> Everyone listening will be surprised. Uh, so yeah, no, it wasn't great, mm. is how I'd describe it if I was writing a book about it. And it, you sort of almost don't realise how not great it was until mm. you look back at it. Once I became a mother, mm. I thought, oh, I don't know if I'm going to have the hang of this, but do you know what? I'm sending these little buggers to gender-appropriate places of education. <laughs> that is the minimum I'm undertaking to do. And you know what? I stuck to my word until my son went to sixth form at Camden School for Girls, which is a whole other story. What? <laughs> Camden School for Girls is... It, it's a girls' school that takes... Is it? That takes boys in the sixth form, but it does. doesn't take very many. Only your children. It only takes a few. So, um, yeah. And then when he filled out his university forms and he had to write what sixth form he was in, he insisted, he can be quite literal, he insisted on writing Camden School for Girls, and then in brackets, which also takes boys in sixth form. <laughs> that became, and then there were never enough boxes on the forms. It caused us quite the consternation. This is why we have children, just to, you know, repeat... 
what we did as children. It's, yeah. it's great. Yours aren't you... that age yet, are they? I know we're not here to talk about you, but <laughs> no. are yours at gender appropriate <laughs> schools? Not now. No. I'm moving them out. Good. Yeah. Um, Shake so, it up. Okay, now you've put me on the spot here in terms of asking questions. It's got to be a good one, this next one. But I've been thinking recently about what makes me a stand-up comedian, because uh, I think people We've are... all been thinking that. <laughs> I think, I think, I don't know whether you think this, but people are essentially stand-up comedians and maybe you spent your time at ITV, but you've always been a stand-up comedian. I don't know whether you feel that. Is, is there any links you can make to your childhood? Because I've started to only recently linking things in terms of lack of certain things and, as you say, fear of certain things, which is why I want to do this sometimes impossible job. Is that something you ever think about or not? Yes or no? <laughs> I think I think the being an outsider is the key thing. If I think yeah. about... I've never felt, even though I say I feel uneasy off stage, which I, well, I either do or I don't. I'll also turn up at some clubs and think, oh, this is really, I really like being here because nobody fits in and everyone's a weirdo. And then you feel like, yeah, this is where the people who don't belong go. Mm. And then every, do you know what I mean? So that's, and I think it's when everyone gets on backstage that I don't like it. I said to her, I won't say which fringe festival it was because then the people who were there with me will know. But I turned up at a fringe festival that was not Brighton or London, or well, there isn't one in London, it's Camden, mm. and it wasn't Edinburgh. Mm. And I was explaining to a non-comedy friend, I said, oh, and I got into this gig and it was a mixed bill. And there were these people who were like my peers in the, and they're all like really matey. And I was like, God, you know, I just don't fit into that clique. And she went, oh God, but they probably wouldn't have minded if you if you went for a drink with them. I said, no, I don't want to be in their clique. I don't like them, but I didn't want them to like each other. So I decided if I don't belong, nobody should belong. And if everyone wasn't friends, that would be great. But when people actually are friends, I'm like, oh, does that make sense? No, absolutely. I mean, yeah. That's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's nothing to see here. It's all good. Um, okay. So we are nearing the end of the interview and we haven't even covered <laughs> three quarters of what i wanted to cover um but is that because uh, you're incompetent or i'm talking badly <laughs> who's the incompetent one here i think <laughs> we found that out during the course of the interview <laughs> okay, good. the Just producer checking. the producer's looking through his um his phone book now for someone else to present but we know what phone numbers he doesn't have because we've been asking you for them so um, let me mention quickly QI, which I've uh, seen you on a couple of times um, recently. That is a pretty big gig in, uh, in comedy. How's, uh, how's going on that? How's the, how's the day of the record of that in terms of uh, how you're feeling? Uh, well, I try and be sort of on the day of any big things. I, I tend to go for a run mm. uh, and be so that I can be a little bit smug about that. <laughs> and then, well, the bit, best bit of advice I was given before my first one of QI, when I'd only been a stand up for maybe under, certainly under three years. Mm. And I thought I'd got booked very prematurely. And I got booked because I'd been on Museum of Curiosity on Radio 4. And it's the same lot of people. Okay. So, you know, so that's how it came about. Mm. And... I, this, I thought, oh, they've made a terrible error and they're going to work out that I'm not the person they think I am. Mm. Uh, and then somebody said to me, well, they said two things. They said, one, don't worry about being like the other four people in the studio. The only person who's not been in, on QI before is you. So don't worry about trying to be like Alan Davis or Sandy or anyone else. Mm. Bring a slice of what you can bring mm. to the table. And then the other thing somebody said was, you've spent your whole life on boards and panels talking being heard over men who are maybe quite privileged or established or think they've got a louder voice 
And so as a comedian, you might be very new, but as a person who's done lots of stuff, mm. you're, you're perfectly ready to do it. And that gave me a lot of confidence. Yeah, the, the that's kind great of, advice. Yeah, so, so that made me stop worrying about And also, because I've worked in television my whole life, I also know just say enough that you're in the edit. And even if you're not funny, somebody will say something funny and everyone will forget that you weren't because <laughs> it turns into something funny. So there was also a pragmatism of I'm going to keep piling in here mm. so I have to be in the edit. So yeah. that, there was a, you know, a cynical approach to that. Yeah, well, you look very relaxed on on that, and um, you seem to be having great fun on that. Was that the yeah, case? Yeah, I was relaxed, um, yeah. and I liked it. Ironically, I was more relaxed in the first one than the second one. Okay. But everyone said they thought the other way round. I was like, oh, great. So when I am relaxed, I look nervous. Okay. As you know, cause why I'm, why yeah. why the change to the second one then? Was there any reason for that? It just didn't wasn't it wasn't as good chemistry in the okay. room. I think I I really liked Josh. It was just the perfect one. The first one I was with Josh Widdicombe. Mm. He and I had lots of kind of West Country bants because we're both from the West Country. Everyone was very kind. Have you got his phone number, please? <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> Whose else would you like? I've got Sandy Tuxwigs and her wife's and her dogs. Uh, so Phil Jupiter's and his daughters. Is that enough? Shall I keep going? I'm glad we came. John Lloyd, I'm if glad you want to get on QI. I'm glad we came. Let me just leave you my phone. Yeah. Okay. Richard Osman. Ed Miliband. <laughs> Louis Theroux. Okay, I'll stop now. Um... And Comedy in America, you've done uh, lots of Comedy in America, bits of Comedy in America? No, Comedy in America, you mean in Comedy in America? I mean Comedy in the country America. Okay, right, let's try that bit again. <laughs> that was a well-asked question and a very poorly phrased response. Okay. Yes, I've done lots. What do you think I meant? I mean, I the gig, a, Comedy in America. I thought it was like a podcast or yeah, a okay. thing that everyone That'll was doing. That would be a good podcast, maybe. I thought everyone was doing something on Comedy Central and you thought I was like a presenter of Comedy <laughs> America. And that you'd muddled me up with like Catherine Bohart or something. <laughs> no, I've done comedy in America. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> That's all I wanted to know. Good. Um, yeah, glad we got that out there. Therapy's big over there, of course. And um, Yeah. Yeah. And right. it's it's bigger than comedy <laughs> over there. So no yeah. one's combining it like you are here, but but Indeed. they will when they catch on to the brilliance of it. Mm. Mm. Do you think there's a stigma on therapy in, uh, in this country still or not? Oh, I don't know. I've had so much of it that I can't imagine anyone hasn't maybe mm. i don't know is there well you're a bit you're a bit younger than me oh yeah 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 quite a quite a lot um yeah yeah like two two generations <laughs> behind me what's it like what's the view like from the from the millennial i was bench, joking about Nathan? joan rivers i had absolutely no idea who you're talking about exactly um you say that when i talk about her at speak on uh, <laughs> when i do speeches in some companies if there's a lot of millennials they don't know who she is and i have to explain it and it makes me sound like a weirdo imagine that <laughs> Um, I just think that I love it in America, and it's more not. It's uh, it's just a more normal thing to do. Everyone's talking about. Everyone's talking about therapy. I think it's a great thing. Having studied psychology, I think. Have you, you should, had therapy? You should take care of your mind. Um, it's not about me, but uh, it's. <laughs> Would you like some? <laughs> yeah, I feel like I've had enough over the last forty minutes. You know, I've got. Um, um, I'm. A, I've got a master's in neurolinguistic programming. I have you. Yeah. Are you trying to get a job presenting this? podcast because you're doing a very good job i'd like to yeah okay yeah. you can do it i think on my, you could do with a co-host you could do it on my weeks off when i'm doing those pink pink ladies gigs that you i'll mentioned. just do the um i'll just ask the questions that have open-ended answers and you can do the closed ones it'll <laughs> <laughs> be brilliant oh my god i've never felt in more need of therapy after if only we were looking at each other in the eye then you'd see the pain in my eyes and you'd stop but it's, it's, it's like it's like that experiment where you you're causing pain 
to a person that you can't see. This is exactly what's happening here. And Even you can tell how long ago <laughs> I did my psychology degree that I've forgotten that very famous experiment. The, um, the laptop screen is kind of glazing over like, like the end of a Black Mirror episode. It's like, oh. <laughs> Right. I can't even. Oh, yes. I was talking about American therapy. Yes. I forget my thread there, but it's um, it's something that I like when, you know, people are dis discussing openly therapy. I think it's very important. And I think um, and I think um, <laughs> is that why you is that why you don't want to answer about whether you've you've had any or have. Well, any? no, I'm only not answering because I haven't. But it's 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 only actually the last year or two to get serious just for a second yeah, please do. but I'll, but I won't manage it probably by the end of the sentence that I felt actually in need of therapy and I've been going back over my psychology degree more over the last year because one or two big life events have happened to me in personal things and um, I have been thinking about it more and I guess that's uh, in, in a sense where this podcast has come out of in terms of I've let my, because I've been vaguely happy over the years, and in the last couple of years, as I say, a few things have happened, that it's, it's just so important to, to keep checking in with your mind and making sure that you're healthy, because people take care of their bodies and not their minds, generally. Um, a lot of people don't take care of either. <laughs> yeah. And I've got all their phone numbers, <laughs> if you want yeah. to talk to them about that. Yeah, well, I think it's um, I think it's interesting when people. I, I ended up getting into therapy very young, mm. uh, well, yeah, as a sort of in my early twenties for a very specific kind of reason. A horrible thing happened, and I I needed help getting over it. Mm. And I and actually one of the things I think, uh, without sounding too kind of caftan wearing about it, but it, it I that was the one good thing that came out of that period in my life is it got me into therapy, which has completely saved me and enabled me to live my life and what I needed therapy for very quickly went far and beyond what I thought I was there for. So I've had a kind of, I've had therapy in my life most of the, a lot of the time for the last 30 years. Mm. And I'm a big, and group therapy. I'm a, I only first did group therapy three years ago. Mm. Huge fan of that as well. To the point I think I might go and become an alcoholic so I can join AA. So I think that sounds awesome. <laughs> and do you feel quite mentally strong now? Um... As you'll have read in my Guardian article, uh, I did say that I feel more mentally strong now than I've ever felt. So yes, I feel much more resilient. But I also, in my 40s, was absolutely as um, emotionally in turmoil as I've ever been. So yes, I've gone from the worst decade to what I suspect is going to be the most resilient one. You don't I'm... know what to say to that. <laughs> That's blown your tiny mind. <laughs> I, love, I love how I'm not even given a second to even think about anything. It's you I've, I've never felt under such pressure. <laughs> it's you I'm so glad this interview's over. <laughs> it's because you... Oh, is it over now? <laughs> well, no, it's not necessarily. I want the you I want the big bombshell at the end of the no, interview you, I, It's because I saw you do what looked like you were crying in the laptop. <laughs> so. I'm not even going to ask a question now. How about you just... Is there a big bombshell that you want to drop on me? Because often, sometimes people drop a psychological bombshell at the end of interviews. And do I'm not they? even going to try and... I'm not even going to try and ask you questions to try and um, just suggest mean, what it might be. Do you want me to drop one on you that will upset you or one that's a revelation about me? Revel you! <laughs> this is about you. I think it's not about me and my lack of friends. I'm now going to get in touch with your therapist after this. Well, you'll have to speak Turkish. Yes, I can. I'm going to learn Turkish. <laughs> Um, well, can you learn the Turkish for giddy kiffer and please explain it because that's 70 quid and we got nowhere with it. I mean, I think we've covered everything in terms of your, 
you know, you've come from a you know a place of fear in in the outside of comedy, and uh, you know you've you've touched upon the things that have happened in your life that have uh, caused you angst and anxiety and all these things, and this is potentially what's made you a stand-up comedian. You went to an all boys school, <laughs> yeah. and now you're sending your son to an all girls <laughs> yeah, school. Yeah. You're clearly not learning. You're just doing no, stand-up no, comedy repeating too. Repeating the mistakes. Is that everything with you, Callie? Have we have we even touched the surface? You make I feel like we haven't. No, I think you've um, I think you've established what a sad loser I am. <laughs> And how I'm no. quite the opposite. Quite the opposite. Yeah, but no. I just mean, have we? I feel like we've covered the, you know, at least the the surface of things. And um, I've got, you've gone through the motions enough to get a few phone numbers, if that's what you mean. <laughs> yeah, I agree. So. I feel like you've come out of a, you know, some periods of darkness, and you're now into a period of bright light. Is that? That with is, a serious answer, do you feel positive uh, for the few, you know for the next few years, and does that sum it up? Yeah, I do feel positive. Mm. Uh, I'm just going to say yeah because that's <laughs> all you deserve. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that is the end of the interview and the end of the psychomedy podcast and the friendship. <laughs> um, that is it. Thank you very much, Callie. What an experience that was for me. <laughs> My pleasure. I but, loved it too. <laughs> that is our show for today. And now I usually have to get through this little bit. I'm going to try and get through it without being interrupted. <laughs> if not, we can just re-record it. That's our show for today. Join us again next week for more Psychomedy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify UK, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you liked it, please give us a five-star review. It helps other people to find us, and only psychopaths leave one-star reviews. Psychomedy was written and presented by me, Nathan Cassidy, BSc in Psychology, and produced and edited by Mike Hansen, BA English. For Pod People Productions, theme music by Mike as well. Follow us on social media at Pod People UK, at Psychomedy Pod, at Nathan Cassidy, and at Callie Beaton. Callie, thank you. Thank you. That was wonderful. Lots of love to you all, and see you next week. Cheers. Ball.